Um, I'm reading from 1 Samuel 10, uh, verse 17 through to 27. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said, and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you have said, No, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tri tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan. And Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord. Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes. He has hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king! Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. But Saul kept silent. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, if you've got Bibles there, then uh, please keep them open. Uh, it'd be great if, if you could bring your own Bibles or there are Bibles in the foyer there to grab on the way in. It's just really helpful to have something physically in front of you while we're looking at this together. The words should appear periodically on the screen behind me, but I've, I, I really believe that having the physical thing in front of you makes a big difference as well. I want to make sure that we're listening to what God says and not just what I say. So um, having the Bibles open will help with that. And as I mentioned, there will be a question time a bit later on. So if anything comes up in your mind as a question on the way through, just make a note of that, uh, think about it, and then you'll have a chance to ask that a bit later on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we continue to look at this bit of your word in 1 Samuel now, that uh, you will give us hearts and minds that are ready to hear and to understand and accept as truth what you have to say to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Isaac said, we have been going through the book of 1 Samuel for a little while now, including when we were doing the live stream. And a few weeks ago, when we were on the live stream, there was a question that came in via the, the text message question line uh, that said this. It said, why does God give in to the demands of the people? When the people asked for a king, and that was clearly a bad thing, God was very clear that they were rejecting him, why does he give in to their demands anyway? It's not going to be good for them. God knows that it's bad, but he, but he says yes to them. And I was thinking about that this week, and I found myself wondering if the person who asked that question was a parent, because I think parents sometimes find themselves being asked or made demands of by their children when parents know that what they're asking for is not good and not good for them. Now, if you ask my kids, 
they'll say that what they ask for is always the best and what, always what they should, should get. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes I think maybe Helena and I actually know what's better for them and that's where kind of parenting needs to be at its best in that difficult situation and having to say no sometimes. And so we do find it a bit of a surprise, I think, whether we're parents or not, when God says yes to their request, even though he said that it's bad, even though he said that it's going to be bad for them. You know, God was Israel's king. God had always been the one who saved them. And the people said, no, we don't want that. We don't want you. We want a king who can save us. God was very clear that they were rejecting him. But he says, yes. Why does he do that? Well, I think this chapter actually gives us part of the answer to that question. And along the way, it shows us a really important truth about how God works out his plans in the world. And so to kind of get us back up to speed, you might remember that the last time all of Israel were together, it was a few chapters ago when they asked for a king. That was the moment that they'd asked for a king. And after a bit of toing and froing, God told the prophet Samuel to give them what they've asked for, to give them the king that they want. But Samuel didn't tell the people that right away. He dismissed them. He sent them back to their homes. And that was the last they had heard of it. And so now, in this, in this chapter, the first thing that happens in our passage today is that God summons Israel back together again. In chapter 10, verse 17, yeah, that's what happens. Let me read from verse 17 to 19. Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God, who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities, and you have said, no, appoint a king over us. So now, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. So God has summoned the people to him. And from the way things begin, it sounds like this is not going to be a good situation for them. It almost sounds like, you know, being summoned before the principal at school. I don't know what your school experience was like, but that's pretty much never going to be a good thing, right, when the principal summons you to them. And it looks like it's not going to go well for them here. I mean, have a look at the difference between verse 18 and verse 19. In verse 18, God says what he has done, and in verse 19, he says what they have done. He says in verse 18, I have always been the one who saves you. I rescued you out of Egypt. In fact, I rescue you from every power and oppressor that comes against you. I'm the king who saves you, but you have rejected me, the very one who saves you. They've asked for a king like the other nations who can save them from their enemies, but God says, look at your history. That has always been me. And so this request that you're asking for when you're asked for a king, that is you rejecting me as the king who saves you. I don't think he could be much clearer in his accusations at this point. And so at the end of verse 19, he says, now present yourselves before me. And it does leave you with the question, what is God going to do to them at this moment? Now, we already know from what he said to Samuel later on, that he's going to say yes to this request. But from their perspective, it sounds quite frightening. But what it turns out is that God gives them what they've asked for. So from verse 20, God singles them out, tribe by tribe, family by family, man by man, 
And as he's doing that, surely that's got to make them a little bit nervous. Because when God starts singling people out like that, the last time he did something like that, it was for judgment. And he's just accused them of rejecting him. So it's no wonder that Saul, the man who he ended up singling out, was hiding when that moment came. But that's not what God is doing here. Verse 23 and 24 tells us what God was doing. They singled out Saul, found him hiding among supplies. Verse 23, then they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than all of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see this man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. So they wanted a king like the other nations who could lead them into battle. And God gives them this guy Saul. And he could hardly be better at what they've asked for than, than this guy. You could hardly do better than him. There was no one like him in all Israel. It says he was literally a head taller than everyone else. He was an impressive, kingly looking guy. Now, when it comes to kind of physical height, I, I kind of tend to downplay the significance of that because I'm the shortest of three brothers. I'm the oldest, but the shortest of three brothers, which can be a little bit humiliating sometimes. My youngest brother, he's literally that head taller than everyone else guy. He has to duck through some, some doorways and get the exit aisles on aeroplanes sometimes. And so I sometimes downplay the... Yeah, Dave, Dave knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> I sometimes downplay the significance of being tall. At least I'm taller than my sister. But physical height sometimes does make a difference when it comes to leaders and leadership. And last week, Bob mentioned that sometimes we kind of psychologically look up to people who are taller. And he mentioned a statistic saying that 60% of the world's leaders are above average height. Now, I hadn't heard that statistic before, but I'd heard another one which is similar, which is that in America, American presidents, whenever there's an American election... Most of the time, the taller of the two candidates wins. So Donald Trump was taller than Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama was taller than John McCain, and, there's, and that's been the majority of cases. But, you know, it's not always like that, right? Joe Biden is shorter than Donald Trump. And the current ruler of, current leader of France and Germany are actually quite short. And so we don't always elect the tallest people. And you'd expect that, right? Because we don't expect Scott Morrison to go charging sword in hand into battle for us, do we? We don't need the big, tall, strong guy to lead us. But that's exactly what Israel wanted in their king. They wanted the big, the tall, the strong, the physically impressive guy to lead them into battle. That's what they'd asked for. And Saul was the perfect candidate. And Samuel says, look at him. Look at this. Look at him. Look at this guy you've chosen. And the people, they could not be happier. Long live the king, they shouted. So God has given them what they asked for. And as I said earlier, we, can, we could kind of think that maybe this is God rolling over and giving in to their demands. But it's right at that moment that God flips the script, you could say. God kind of turns things around and in verse 25 there is a twist where God takes what they've asked for and he makes it part of his own plan for his people. 
Look at verse 25. So they've just said, long live the king. Verse 25, Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of the kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. You see, right at the moment where it looks like the people have successfully rejected God for the sake of having a human king who can lead them and save them, God turns that around and shows them that even this king is going to be under his authority. It's Samuel the prophet who tells them what this kingdom and this king is going to be like. And he writes it down and puts it before the Lord as a symbol of it is God who this king is going to be under. And then who is the person who dismisses the crowd? It's not the new king. It's Samuel the prophet. And in fact, he even dismisses the king as well. Have a look at the end of verse 25 again. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes... And Saul also went to his home in Gibeah. See, a new king has just been appointed, Saul, but Samuel is the one who dismisses the crowd. And not just the crowd, he dismisses the king as well. I imagine Samuel's kind of sent everyone home, then he turns around and he sees that Saul's still standing there, and he goes, no, off you go, you too. It's a very clear demonstration that God's prophet is still in charge of the situation. God's prophet is still over the people because this king is going to be a king under the authority of God. That's what this new kingship is going to be like. And now everybody knows it. So what looks like God giving in to the people's demands, God turns that around and shows that he uses their misguided and wrong and even sinful desires and choices to actually carry out his own plans. And we should be pretty thankful, I think, that God does that because about a thousand years later, God did that again in the most significant way. Again, the people were gathered together and they were presented with their king. This time it was Pontius Pilate presenting them Jesus. And he said, here is your king. And the people said, no, crucify him. We don't want him as our king. That was the people rejecting God and his king. But in his death, in the death of Jesus, God was actually achieving his plan, the salvation of the world. But not in the way that they or anyone expected. You see that God uses our misguided, our wrong, even our sinful choices and desires to further his purposes and his plans, but not in the ways that we expect. So coming back to the passage now, let's see what happened next, because the last two verses show us two different responses to this new king who will rule under God. The first is in verse 26. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. That's the first response. These men whose hearts God has touched follow the new king. They follow him. Now, remember, these men were just as guilty as everyone else in rejecting God. They were among the crowd of everyone who was saying, we want a king, we don't want God. 
They didn't think that this was what they needed, a king under God. But God has taken their initial wrong desires, as understandable as they might have been, and he's given them something better, a king under God. And he's touched their hearts so that they accept and follow this new king. That's the first response, and we'll come back to that again in a moment. The other response is in verse 27. But some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. These other people, these scoundrels, it calls them, they despised the king and they said, how can this fellow save us? Now, I wonder, what was it that made them say that about Saul? Because back in verse 23, just a few verses earlier, Everyone had agreed that this was exactly the kind of king that they wanted. He was the king who could save them, just like the nations around them. If Saul couldn't do it, no one could. And they all shouted, long live the king. So why do they despise him now? Why do they say, well, he can't save us now? Well, it seems to me the only thing it might be is what's happened in between then and now, which is what happened in verse 25. That is, Samuel has shown them what kind of king and what kind of kingdom this is going to be. This is going to be a king under God, a king who still rules under the authority of God. And so now they say, now this guy can't save us. He's not the kind of king we want or need. And so, in actual fact, they're rejecting God again when they reject this king, Saul. They've rejected the God who saves them and now they're rejecting the king who God has given them to save them. See, they think they know what they want. They want someone who can save them, but they want to do it their way, not God's way. And I think that kind of gets reinforced even more when we remember that the word that's used to describe them, scoundrels, not a word that we use that often, worthless men, wicked men sometimes it says. The last time that label was used of anyone was a few chapters back in chapter 2 verse 12 where it was used of Eli's sons, the wicked priests, where it said Eli's sons were scoundrels, they had no regard for the Lord. Those scoundrels had no regard for the Lord and it seems like that's the same with these guys. They rejected the God who saves them and so of course they don't value the king who God has given them to save them. What they value is the power and the strength and the kind of saving that the rest of the world values and wants. But God's way and God's king seems weak and foolish to them. And again, that's even more true of the king who God has given to save us, Jesus. If we don't actually value God and having God over us, then... The king that he has given to save us and the way that he has given him to save us seems foolish. That he would die on a cross to forgive me for my sins, to forgive you for my sins, that's not what I need. I need something else. We don't value the kind of saving that he offers if we don't value the God who offers it. I mean, have a think about it. When we think about what it is that we want from God, and I say we as in the world at large generally, you hear it in the language we say, if I were God, this is what I would do. 
Maybe you've said that yourself. Maybe you've heard other people say that. If I were God, I would put an end to suffering. I would fix climate change. I would communicate better. I would put an end to um, oppressive leaders and injustice. If I were God, I'd fix the problems in the world. That's what we need. We need someone who can do that. That's God's job, right? And so that's what we, we value, if at all, from God. But God actually says, no, that's not the problem. Those are the symptoms of the problem. The problem is that we reject him. And God's solution, then, is, is different than what we expect. But it's one that we need because it's what brings us back to him. But that message, the message of the cross, of the king dying, a humiliating death, to forgive our sins and bring us back to God, that is foolishness to those who don't actually want God. And why would that be the solution? It's offensive at best. It's useless otherwise. And we know that that's how people respond to this message all too well. Maybe we felt that ourselves sometimes. Maybe you feel that now. If we don't value God and knowing him, then we won't appreciate the goodness of knowing of his king and his kingdom, of his plan for us in Jesus. We'll only value what we think is directly addressing my felt needs. And, you know, I've, I've known people who have become interested in Jesus because of a particular problem in their life. And they think, well, maybe, maybe this will fix that problem. But when they realise that Jesus is actually about something far more significant, that he wants me to give my whole life to him and have him as my Lord and Saviour, well, then they say what these men said. How can this fellow save me? My problem is this, not that. But I wonder also if we can hear the graciousness of God in all of this. The God who touches people's hearts so that they do follow his king. Remember, all of the people in this story started from a position of rejecting God, every one of them. But God has somehow included that in his plan to give them what they needed. And he's touched their hearts so that they follow him. And as much as people might reject Jesus because he might not fix my needs that I think I need him to fix, at the same time, there are plenty of people who God uses those needs to bring them to Jesus and his plan for them in Jesus and to recognise that he has something even better to offer. And maybe you know someone who that has been the case for, maybe that's even been for you personally. I remember when I was in high school, my friend James was into all the kind of wrong stuff that people get into in high school, drugs, alcohol, and the mental health problems that often go with that. And God used that to bring him to trust Jesus. And it transformed his life in, in every kind of way. And I know there are plenty of Jameses out there who God does that in this significant way. But I also think God does this same sort of thing in smaller ways in the lives of each of us as well. And I certainly see it in my own life, where I start with a, this is my problem that I want God to fix. That's the issue. You know, whether it's my anxiety, my relationship problems, my loneliness, my sickness, my addiction, my money problems, 
That's where I start, and I think that's what the issue is, that God needs to fix for me. But God takes that and he uses it to show me that he has an even bigger and even better plan for me, to bring me closer to his king and his kingdom through Jesus. God helps us to see that knowing him through Jesus is always at the centre of what the rest of my life must be about. And as I said, I can remember plenty of times where God has used that to bring me closer to him through Jesus. I I was thinking about me and, and the problem that I wanted fixed, but God showed me that he had a better plan. Sometimes that did involve fixing the problem, but it always involved changing me so that I trusted him more. You know, for example, we might want God to fix a difficult relationship that we are in. And when I say that, I mean change that person or take them out of my life even. But sometimes instead, God sees that he wants me to become more like his king and the character of his kingdom and to grow in patience and kindness and forgiveness and that that's actually the bigger plan that he has for me. Or maybe I want God to deal with my anxiety about a particular problem and maybe that will involve God solving that problem and taking that out of my life. Or maybe it will mean him teaching me how to trust him in the midst of that difficulty and show me that that's actually the bigger issue, trusting him in a difficult situation. Yeah, of course, God cares about every little thing in our life. He does. He does. But we don't believe in a therapeutic, a therapeutic God who exists just to solve my problems as I see them and then go away again. What we have is a God who knows that what we need is to draw near to him through Jesus. And that's true in the absolute sense. That is, there is nothing that you need that doesn't first involve coming to him for forgiveness through Jesus. And it's also true in every little way that God wants us to know him and to trust him in every situation so that we do draw nearer to him through his son, Jesus. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, you know the, the desires of our hearts. You know the things that we want uh, and that we need and also the things that we think we need. Father, we know that sometimes we come to you with demands rather than requests and insist that you solve our particular issue. Father, we thank you that you are a kind and generous God and do want what is good for us. And we pray that you help us to know that your way is better than our way and sometimes your solution um, will be different than what we expect. Father, help us to see that your King Jesus is what we need in every aspect of life and that you draw us nearer to him through trusting him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.